Welcome to another installment of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next special guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh as we have another great conversation. I'm excited to have you here, Jay Mandium. He's got amazing credits. He's uh, HBO Silicon Valley. Right. And Comedy Central's At Midnight. Correct. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's good to see you. It's been a while. I haven't seen you in a while. It's, I've been hiding. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes I forget you were even part of the comedy I store <laughs> until you reach out. Until <laughs> until a check bounces. Where's Bob? Where's Bob? The check's bounced. Yeah, I know. Well, thankfully, they don't bounce much anymore. No. So that's... Uh, you know what? Actually, during... The, that whole era when checks were bouncing, we, when it was like a Russian roulette ca- cashing your check, I luckily never had a check bounce. I would oh. hear the legends of the check oh bouncing, my God. but I never had that happen. It was, I got to tell you, there were some sad days. We we were paying cash for the liquor. Um, you know, we just, we'd write a check and just pray. <laughs> and I hope everybody went on Friday night or Saturday, because usually uh, Monday was good. Um yeah, those were some lean days. That's I was. It's funny. I was just talking with um, uh, Jen Kane, and right. we were laughing about how um, it, when uh, Fat Tuesdays would cancel, right, we couldn't make payroll because we only had two <laughs> shows in the main room. Oh man, those were some days. So yeah, so uh, well, I'm excited because I mean you've got a lot going on. Uh, y- y- yeah, yes. you would kind of <laughs> sort of. Uh, the the bank account doesn't reflect it. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, but. W- that's probably often true for a lot of people that we see on TV and living the good life um, in entertainment, right? Yeah, there is a perception that if you're on TV, you have money. Right. And uh, I don't know where it comes from, but, uh, you know, just um, I was I was back home in Dallas, Texas last month, uh, and uh, I saw my cousin and some of his friends. And before I left, one of his friends gave me a, a screenplay, and I said, what do you what do you want me to do with this? And he said, well, can you read it? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I guess I can read Probably. it. Probably. And then, and then, you know, I went home that night. My mom saw it. And she said, what is this? I said, that's some screenplay that my cousin's friend gave me. And she said, oh, he thinks you can do something with it? And it, <laughs> she wasn't being protective. It was like, a, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't right. know you can't do anything with right. this thing. It's Hollywood. <laughs> that's too funny. Uh, so you, um, so how did you um, – how did you come about getting into stand up and how did you get a you know did you, was it a dream you had as a kid Yeah when I was uh when I was a kid uh my dad and I we would always just kind of watch sitcoms together and okay. he used to like to predict the next you know line or joke in the sitcom and Which is pretty easy. And more often than not he'd get it right <laughs> and then he'd be like I should have been a scriptwriter and I think sort of early on that's where the the bug came from or the influence came from is maybe there was something in my head that said, oh, if I get on TV and, and have my own sitcom, I, I can entertain my dad. Um, but when I was in college, I was a uh, I was an engineering major and I was taking like a a video production class for the broadcast journalism department to like figure out, like learn the technical side of the video uh, things for my engineering degree. And we were learning editing and I had to cut together a news piece, and the way I did it, it wasn't like I was doing it for the 5 o'clock news. It was like I was doing it for The Daily Show. Right. And my professor said to me, uh, well, I have to fail you on this, but um, do you do stand-up? And I said, no, I kind of always wanted to. And her friend ran one of the comedy clubs in town, and uh, so she called her friend up and said, I have a student who's interested in doing stand-up, and that's kind of how I got into it. I was 
18 at the time, I think. Wow. And so before that, though, even though you were doing sitcom stuff with your dad, you hadn't entertained it as a... Uh, no, it was just sort of like one day I'll be a stand-up comedian, I, I never, but I never knew when that day would be. And right. sort of this was the, I guess, kick in the butt to do it. Wow. And so then you started doing local stand-up? Yeah, I started uh, in Dallas, Texas. I was doing uh, stand-up at the – we had – when I started, there were, I think, five clubs in town. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, I would just kind of work the, the improv and the, the local clubs. And and what was it like – like um, did you grow up in Dallas all your life? I did. I grew up in Dallas, Texas my That's, whole life. Okay. And what um, – having grown up in the South myself, um, I'm wondering, like, how was it – for you in terms of, you know, at least back in the day for me, unless you were a pretty much a white male, um, doors didn't open as easy um, for other people. And I'm just wondering, like, if you ever – This is absurd, but I think Dallas, Texas has the largest concentrate of Indian comedians. I, <laughs> I, I think Indian comedians just dominate the Dallas scene because when I started, there were at least – three or four Indian comedians that were already in the scene before I even started. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, the, they had a, they had a monthly show at the Addison improv in Dallas called Indians at the improv. Wow. So the, <laughs> I, I, it, no, it wasn't like that for me. That's so, well, that's great. Did everybody like come from Toronto? Cause that's where <laughs> I would. No, Dallas has a, uh, like the Dallas and the suburbs of Dallas have a surprisingly large Indian community. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a town called Plano just outside of Dallas. It's yep. a, a huge, huge Indian population. It's like because I guess all the um, all the Silicon Valley companies set up shop there, right, and then right. there was you know hospitals and stuff there. So there's a lot of work to be found for Indian people in the '70s there. Okay, and do um, do you like growing up? Was your family very traditional? Culturally? No, no, because my my dad had uh, first came to America in 1958, and then okay. my mom came in 67 and then when they when she came in 67 my parents settled in Texas so you know it was a very conservative time back then so they kind of had to pick and choose which elements of their culture they could keep and i was born very late to my parents there's a okay. there's a 13 year age difference between me and my middle brother 17 okay. between me and my eldest and so by the time i came along you know my parents kind of already had this way that they raised the other two kids and that's just sort of how they applied it to me so they, okay. they really and there wasn't a lot of indian people here when they came so the mass migration didn't happen until the late 70s okay and so it was just a, yeah i didn't have a traditional indian upbringing per se okay all right and would you say like looking back when you said your parents settled in texas of course i'm from tennessee so i'm thinking they did settle but uh i don't <laughs> are you a big texas fan um you know, you don't really have a choice about the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, you have I, to love them. You have to. They're God's favorite team. And <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 when I opened up a bank account, my first bank account, the the debit card they gave me, it already had a Cowboys logo on it. Right. It's just the you have to tell them not to put the Cowboys right. logo on it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Everything's bigger and better in Texas. And so when when did you get your first um, paying gig? My first as a as an entertainer first paying gig well as an entertainer when i was in the third grade i was an extra on a pbs show called wishbone and i think oh, wow. I, got, I think i got 50 dollars for the day for that and did you see the money uh yeah i think we did we i did end up getting a check uh i don't i'm sure taxes were cut out but it didn't bother me then and right. then i had a i had a savings account every i was in the third grade so every you know wednesday the bank would come to our school and you could make your deposits and withdrawals and stuff are and, you serious yeah 
Well, that's pretty cool. So I had a savings account. I proudly deposited that check in, in the bank account. And wow. That So your school taught you how to or at least encourage you to save money. Yeah, uh, yeah. They it was easy to set up the savings account at the at the school, and then we also had a, a program in the. Uh, you did it in the fourth grade, and then you did it again in the seventh grade. It was a thing called Enterprise City, which was just a uh, it was like a, a mock city that you would go to for a day, and everyone had a job, and people were bank tellers, people were you know factory workers, people were bookkeepers, and and, and so you learned how to be a sort of a you learned sort of economics through that. Wow, that's super cool because a lot of schools don't teach that stuff. I always get frustrated um, because a lot of young people have no idea. Uh, yeah, I know how a bank account works. Now, whether I'm good at maintaining one or not, that's a right. separate issue, but I know how it works. No, that's cool. And uh, at this point, if uh, one of the comedy store checks had bounced on you, would uh, your account cover you? Or would you? are you still a check-to-check kind of guy? Uh, no, I'm still a, very much a check-to-check kind of guy. Okay. And uh, what did your, did your parents instill any um, money beliefs? Uh, yeah, my dad was very much a um, – he always believed in – Paying off your credit card mm-hmm. in full every month so you don't get any interest. Uh, he thought credit card debt was the worst thing in the world. And then, it's um, pretty bad. And then he uh, – my dad was always like, you know, save your money. Don't eat out. Uh, I had a well-paying job in college for, for a college kid, and uh, I spent all that money. Yeah. I, I, mean, I spent it up – I spent it on DVDs and, and – All the good dumb, stuff. And food and dumb things and – you can't even buy DVDs anymore, pretty much. You, <laughs> you, just, have, you have to you have to want to buy a DVD. You have yeah. to search. You got to yeah, exactly. And did your dad even like even though um, you guys used to joke and watch sitcoms, did they encourage you to go in entertainment, or did they say stick with the engineering? They they were they weren't opposed to me going into entertainment as long as I had a steady source of income. So as long as I got my engineering degree and could work as an engineer while I was trying to make it as a comedian, they were they were fine with it. The problem is, is I rarely worked as an engineer. Okay. <laughs> and when and so you so you went and started doing stand up um, because your professor right hooked you up. And then like where did it progress from there? Did you realize all right I'll get the degree, but I. I knew I was going to graduate, and I never thought I was going to finish my engineering degree. I had a scholarship from the School of Engineering, so I always take one or two engineering classes a year, <laughs> so or, keep just just the to keep the yeah. And I got I got a film degree uh, in like three and a half years or something because I was really passionate about that. I thought I wanted to be a director, yeah. And um, and then when I when I got the film degree and I was ready to graduate, I found out I was just missing two classes to finish my engineering degree. So I said, oh, I might as well just stick around for another year and get the degree. And I did that, and I, uh, I had a, a cool senior design project that was related to uh, my film degree where I created an algorithm to sort of schedule a movie shoot for a very low-budget indie shoot where you, know, you had limited access to equipment, limited access to actors and locations and stuff. And so you just input the, input the availability of everything and then your needs for each scene, and then it just prints out every feasible shooting schedule so you can get your shoot done. Wow. So that was that was like that was something I was interested in doing, but I right. was never going to pursue I never wanted to like develop that into an app beyond that. Right. Well, would you say that you have a traditional engineer's mind? I think when it comes to certain things, my engineering brain does kick in a little bit and uh and tries to uh tries to like uh solve problems, you know. You know, yeah. I, like I think maybe about a year ago 
the general manager of the comedy store was saying that they had a problem on Friday nights because there were three shows exiting at the same time, and so there was like a clog of traffic in the right. in the hallway. And I start like my brain starts going, "Okay, what can we do? How do I?" So if you start this show five minutes earlier and this show five minutes later, can you? I'm sitting here trying to work out every angle to solve this problem, and it's a, it's. It's above my pay grade. It's, it's not, <laughs> not happening. Yeah. Why am I trying to work on this? But there was something that was like, this is fun. I this enjoy is, this. We'll figure it out. That's funny. Um, did you, um, like, look now in your career, um, if you look and just explore since you were, you know, from 18 on, do you have any, have you discovered any, like, financial blocks or beliefs around money that, like, I have to be a starving artist or um... – No. Uh, actually, so what I've learned relatively recently is there's no there's no retirement plan for a stand-up comedian. If you yeah. don't like get a TV show uh, and you can't find a way onto a cruise ship in your 60s and 70s, there's no retirement plan. And, right. and you're going to get phased out of the clubs at some point. You know, right. there's no, you're not going to be a 60 year old professional middle touring the country. Right. And, um, and so a lot of the comics, the older comics that I know all got into TV writing. Cause I guess the writer's guild has the best pension plan ah. compared to, compared to SAG or the PGA or director's guild or something. And, uh, and so that's something I've realized recently is, Oh, maybe I need to start, trying to write on a show for a little bit because so I can get that pension plan at least. Yeah. Do you, have you done writing? I, I, I've written a little bit. Um, I was a writer on a Netflix show earlier this summer, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a guild show. So it uh, doesn't go into that pension plan, but right. Well, what would you say? So, um, you're on, um, Silicon Valley, which I always want to call silicone, but, um, like when you first got your first paycheck and when you first walked on the set, like, what was that like? It was it was great because uh, so it was uh, Mike Judge created the show and um, I I met Mike Judge at an event like a few years ago and we just kind of stayed in touch because he used to live by my old high school and that's sort of where he he based office space on that town and he based King of the Hill on on my hometown and so we just kind of like connected in that sense and then uh, one day I just asked him if I could audition for something for Silicon Valley and he brought me in for this role and. Because he liked my tape, and uh, and then so you know I didn't even know he was going to be the director on on the shoot. I just thought, oh, this is fun. I get to do Silicon Valley, and there he was, and uh, he was directing me, and uh, and then we just um, I, he just gave me some like free reign to kind of play around a little bit, and I was just doing some other stuff, and he was laughing, and then at one point he took other actors in the scenes lines and started giving to me and say, okay, now you do the line, you do the line. And, oh, wow. and it just, it was fun to play around with them. And it was really cool that my first sort of television experience since I was in the third grade doing wishbone was working with Mike judge. And I had to do an accent for the role, which normally I'm opposed to, but because he's a director, I admire so much. And I felt that the Indian guy in office space, I think is one of them, the most, sort of like non-stereotypical Indian characters that I've seen in movies in a long time. I was like, you know, I, I think he can handle this in a tasteful way. It's not going to be sort of, it's not going to be, I'm not going to feel like I'm cooning. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, so if I go back to the third grade when you were in the other show. Yeah. What was that like? I hated it. Really? I It was my first time doing a TV show. I, I did it because... Um, I was in a I was in a school play and I guess 
everybody was fascinated that how good how good I was in this school play because I was such a quiet child and uh, so my mom just thought oh maybe there's a something to this and she started taking me around to auditions and I uh. got cast in this show and I didn't realize you know they do like five takes <laughs> and all this kind of, and so I get so sick of it and fed up and I hated it and I wanted to leave and after that I said I'm never gonna I'm never gonna be uh, in the movies or on TV ever again ever ever but Things like that make you appreciate the simplicity of stand-up. Yeah. Because, you know, you just go up there. It's all you need is yourself and one person that wants to listen to you. And that's it. That's you, it. You don't have to do anything else. It's so – I love the beauty of the simplicity of it. Yeah, I think it's funny because I – before I was doing stand-up, I did uh, sketch. I was at Acme Comedy Theater and had done some stuff, uh, taking some classes at the Groundlings. And, you know, we wrote a lot of sketches. But if the three other people don't show up – you don't have a sketch. Yeah. Right. And you like and it was always and I initially liked that because if I was, oh, I think this is going to be bad. At least I bombed with everybody else on the sketch. Um, but then at a certain point, I didn't want to have to rely or, you know, worry that people were going to show up. And I, and stand up is just really it's just you. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's all you need to rely on is yourself. And. You know, with a movie or a television show, you need so many things to go right to get that laugh. But with stand-up, it's just you. That's all it's you need. You. you don't need anything else. Yeah. Uh, what is your uh, – do you have a memory of, like, the worst bomb? Yeah. Uh, I was opening for Brett Ernst at the Arlington Improv. Okay. And um, I told a joke on the first night, uh, and I said – I said something like uh, – the joke was, I hate science so much that I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. And <laughs> and I heard – and I just uh, – the audience kind of chuckled at it. It wasn't like a huge laugh. And then I just kind of saw Brett in the back, and he was not amused. And I was like, oh, Brett hates that joke. And he comes up to me after the show, and he says, yo, that's a funny joke. I don't care what happens this weekend. Don't lose that joke. That's a funny joke. So the next night – my parents come, and I do the joke, and I get booed. And <laughs> this is this is like second or third joke in. Wow. And I have to be on stage for 20 minutes, otherwise oh, I don't get paid. Right, right. <laughs> and so I'm trying to throw everything at this crowd, and nothing's nothing's happening. Nothing. I'm, wor I'm working so hard, but I have to do my time. And I see Brett in the back of the room just dying laughing. He thinks this is so funny. He it's hilarious when it's not you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, bombing sucks, but it's hilarious to watch. Yeah. Oh, man. And so did you ever get the audience on your side? Never. Never. I stood up there for 25 minutes in. Oh, um, man. And and the, and uh, this – like that joke was one I was like really proud of at the time when I wrote it. Yeah. And I remember like the first time I, wrote, I came up with it, I told this to my dad. My dad was like, don't ever say that joke. And and after the show, my dad came up to me. Like, my mom comes up. She gives me this big hug. She's like, oh, they're just – they're dumb. They're rednecks. Don't worry about it. And my dad's like, told you not to do that joke. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. That's painful. Well, I remember a few times when I was nervous about doing new material, I always bring a friend so that if I bombed horribly, at least I knew one person that thought I was a decent human <laughs> being. Because that could be – it's it's lonely. It is. At open mics when you're – you know, everybody's competing. Sort of, it's yeah, uh, it's it, and it, it just gets. I feel like it gets in L.A. at least it gets worse every year because it's the open mics just get more and more saturated with more 
want to be comedians or aspiring comedians and then it's like well how do you even get feedback on if anything works or not right that's do you, and um do you consider yourself more a stand-up or an actor or i am primarily a stand-up yeah i will say i am a stand-up before i'm anything else yeah yeah i feel like it's a whole separate breed even no matter what like you're a comic you're a comic yeah and uh oh man um do you rick and so you said right now that you're living check to check, mm-hmm. which is pretty norm. But are your parents a safety net? Uh, well, um, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> my dad passed away earlier this year, so oh, I believe I do have an inheritance coming at some point. But ah. <laughs> so yes, um, <laughs> but uh, I yeah though they've been pretty supportive financially, uh, especially because I've gotten into some dumb messes myself, and they've managed to help me out a lot. So. Yes, that's helped a lot, but I'm sure if I didn't get into all those stupid things in my 20s, I probably might have been able to get my shit together. Uh, uh, dumb things like what? Uh, just some legal issues. Oh, well, those are always fun. Yeah. Yeah, legal issues are fun. Um, and right wh- right now, are you doing – what are you doing right now? Um, right now, I, uh, I pretty much am on the road uh, – with, I tour with D.L. Hughley pretty mm-hmm. regularly now, but that's a very recent occurrence. That's mm-hmm. something that's happened the last couple months. Um, and then I, there's a, a retired television writer that I drive around, uh, and he just throws me some money on the table to do that. Oh, cool. Well, it's, you know, there's so many like, – I was just thinking with uh, Netflix and Apple Television and Hula and Amazon, everybody trying to do content. I I don't know. It feels like that there's a, a, a Dallas Indian – uh, community uh, sitcom. If the, if anyone there is listening, uh, yeah, I've got I've got an idea ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just like it's yeah, it just sort of surprises me uh, that Dallas well, is the pocket. Yeah, there. Well, Dal- there's several areas in America that have large Indian pop. New Jersey is another big one. Um, but uh, this year, uh, every pilot I auditioned for during pilot season had like Indian characters and every pilot had an arranged marriage storyline. And I thought, Oh, oh. God, are you kidding me? Is this where we're at now? This is so original. <laughs> That's funny. And, and the funny thing is, is, is like, it's all these parents, uh, all these mothers trying to arrange marriages for their sons and their kids. And, and my mom has a friend whose daughter is like really hot. And I asked her to arrange my marriage to her once. And my mom said, uh, no, this girl has a future. I'm not going to ruin her life and introduce her to you. All right. <laughs> so, that's what's actually happening out there, not wow. this romanticized view of the arranged marriage where it's like all parents expect their children to get arranged marriages. Wow. It's good to know that your mom's advocating for you. <laughs> yeah. She's a believer. <laughs> and uh, how many how many siblings do you have? I've got two older brothers. Two older brothers. And you said 13 years? 13 between me and my middle, 17 between me and my eldest. Oh, okay. And so, sort of, in a way, you were the only child. Uh, yeah, I was I pretty much had the childhood and the only child, which I guess is probably why I like stand-up the most, because, again, you don't need anybody else. You just, right. <laughs> I don't need any of you. Just that loner mentality. Exactly, exactly. So, um, what would you say in terms of, like, life choice to pick this path? You chose not to be an engineer. Um, like, what are the what are the trade-offs, or what are the pros and what are the cons um you're never gonna have like a quote-unquote normal life so to speak uh you're never gonna have 
there are comics who get married and have kids and families and stuff, and I don't know how they do it, but they do it, and good for them. Um, I'm never going to be that guy. Yeah. And I, I realized in the last few years that I'm probably better off not being in a relationship because girls don't – they don't understand. Like, they don't understand the road life, you know? Right. Why are you gone for six weeks? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing after the show? I'm just going back to the hotel room. I'm not right. doing anything. Right. Right. <laughs> and what? And what's the? Um, but what's the biggest payoff for you? I like. I like giving laughter to to these these people in America. Like these people who just they work their jobs every day. They don't want anything out of life other than to provide for their families. They're not looking for anything bigger. They're just looking yeah. to to raise their families, raise good kids, have their kids go off and raise good kids and have a, a stable life. And those people make America function. And I think right. there's something so beautiful to giving them escapism for how hard they work, giving them like a little bit of stress relief. Yeah, I think that's so true. I, I remember a couple comics like screaming at the audience for not laughing and being a terrible audience. And I, my mindset was always these people paid for parking. They might have paid a babysitter. They're buying at least two drinks. And like the least we can do is try to give them a little bit of, uh, you know, break from the everyday life. And uh, yeah, like it's I, I always go on stage and sometimes I have to remind myself of it, but I try to go on stage remembering it's not about me. It's about them. Right. And that doesn't mean pander to them. That doesn't mean – that just means remember to to give them something. Give them your all. Give them give them something that they can relate to. It does, it, but it's not saying change who you are, you know. Um, at a certain point, like when you're at, I'd say, like a Bill Burr level and your fan base is coming out to see you and they get offended, it, yeah, it's about you then, you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, so let me ask you this. If you um, – were to go back in time, which I know it's not millions of years, but if you're going to go back in time to your 18-year-old self or even maybe your third-grade self when you swore off television forever, like what would you tell a younger version of yourself? Like knowing what you know now, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? I'd really emphasize not spending money and saving money and trying to be self-sufficient. And then the other thing is I'd have to brace, sort of brace myself for this notion of you're not going to have a normal life, you know, while your friends are all out there getting, they're buying cars and getting their six figure salaries and, you know, they're having kids and they're getting married. That's not your life. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and now it's, it's, it's to the point where, you know, one of my best friends from high school, he is, he's been married for probably 10 years now. He's got two kids. He works as a loan officer every day. He'll text me. Oh, I wish I had your life. I wish I had your life. <laughs> Oh man, go go fund a loan! <laughs> <laughs> wow, and so he so would you say that is that true of most of your friends that have chosen to do something more secure? Um, not all of them, but there are some people who, uh, you know, I've got two friends in particular that I talk to every day who kind of have a normal life, and it's not that they regret their life per se, but there is that sort of like grass is sort of greener view in their eyes. You know, I and I would. I mean, maybe you'll disagree, but I think the um, I think the illusion that the grass is greener is just that, because it's a lot of hard work, and especially when you're on the road and you're in a hotel that's you know worse than the worst of the right. hotels with the cockroaches sleeping in the bed with you, and um, it can be lonely. Um, it's not all the the glamour and 
even if you get to meet famous people, they're still people and yeah, a lot of egos. There uh, er- earlier this year, I was I was driving from one gig in Flagstaff, Arizona, to another gig in Nevada, and I was like caught in a snowstorm, and I was like panicking, like I was like, oh, "Is my car gonna handle this? Am I even gonna make it to the next gig? Am I gonna be snuck in the snow?" I was like, I was panicking for a while. Then uh, some road work dried up for me, so I took like a, a desk job for a, a few months. And I remember one day I was answering the phone at this job, and I just thought, "I'd rather be stuck in that snowstorm <laughs> right now." Yeah. That makes sense. Did you ever do a triple run? Uh, I, I've done a couple of triple gigs, but never any real triple runs, just because it's just not cost effective for me. You you, <laughs> you, you pay for those. Yeah, trips. you lose you money, and God forbid you blow out a tire or something. <laughs> You're so screwed. Uh, yeah, I did a couple of those. They're rough. Well, let me ask you this: We're almost at the end, and um, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Instagram. It's uh, it's J Mandiam, the letter J M A N D Y A M. I'm on Twitter, same thing, J Mandiam. Uh, but I'm currently locked out of my Twitter account, and I haven't really uh, made the effort to unlock myself from it. So I don't know how much good that'll be. Uh oh, is that legal issues again? Uh, uh, there's there's a there's a guy named Dinesh D'Souza who was pardoned by Trump earlier this year, uh. and. Like maybe like three or four years ago, I used to like to troll him on Twitter, and uh, I guess after he got pardoned, someone went back and back three years and flagged a tweet of mine trolling him, and Twitter says you have to delete this tweet, and I said it's a three year old tweet. You're kind of past the statute of limitations when you can flag a tweet, and now I just said no on principle, I don't want to delete it. Wow, and they shut you down. So I'm locked out of my Twitter account. Oh my god. Well, that's that's funny. All right, so don't find him on Twitter, but everywhere else and Facebook, you can <laughs> give him a look. Um, well, that's the end of our show. Um, I'm Bob Wheeler, the host of Money You Should Ask. You can find us on Facebook. You can actually find us on Twitter because we didn't get shut down. You can find us on Instagram. Um, and if you like this podcast, tell everybody. Um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher which I never even heard of, but I'm on it. And uh, if you didn't like it, don't say a word. All right, till next time. Thank you. Thank you.